y'all. This is John Lawrence with the Anesthesia Guidebook. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Ben Levin on the perioperative management of patients with left ventricular assist devices, or LVADs, for non-cardiac surgery. This is your podcast if you're looking for a refresher or quick overview of managing patients with LVADs as an anesthesia provider. This podcast was the last episode that I published on From the Head of the Bed, and it originally came out on July 4th, 2020. In August of that year, I launched Anesthesia Guidebook, and so this episode is being re-released on September 16th, 2021. Dr. Levin and I discuss how LVADs work, why people have them, the differences between LVADs as bridge to transplant or destination therapy, and crucially, how to manage these patients perioperatively during non-cardiac surgery with special emphasis on monitoring and hemodynamic management. Dr. Levin received his Master's of Science in Biomedicine and his medical degree from Tufts University Medical School. He completed his anesthesia residency at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine in 2020 and recently returned to MMC after completing a fellowship in critical care at Massachusetts General Hospital. His clinical areas of interest include cardiovascular surgery and critical care, echocardiography, and mechanical circulatory support devices. Dr. Levin provided a PDF of a presentation on LVADs he gave as his senior project during his residency, and you can find that in the show notes to this episode. It's got all the references, studies, graphs, management algorithms, chest x-rays, and device pictures you could ever want to help make this info sink in. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Ben Levin, I'm so stoked uh, to have you on the show to talk about LVAD management for non-cardiac anesthesia cases. Uh, this is based on a grand rounds that you gave at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine last week, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you came to talk about it today. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. It's an awesome opportunity to kind of share my passion and give some people some insight that I've I've gleaned and that other people have gleaned for me too. So that's awesome. This is the first podcast I've ever done face to face where we're also wearing face masks in, in the in the era of COVID. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, new things I think going on. <laughs> I was thinking about that today. I was, you know, it's like, okay, so we're going to be doing this. I guess is the sound quality going to be good enough? But, you know, we'll see how it goes. But we'll see how it mean, goes. it's a whole new world, right? It might actually help. There's always like a like a pop factor that happens with uh, normal speech. So I don't know. It might be a, it might be like a you know a little pop filter. Maybe the thing you have to do moving forward it, is it, it may be face mask moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> Will be for a couple of years probably, but not just for podcasts. Well, Ben, I wondered if you would just give the listeners a little bit of your background uh, in terms of the path you've taken in healthcare. You've got a bit of a winding path. You've got a lot of experience in different things. Uh, you just finished up your anesthesia residency program, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, but you're also headed towards a fellowship, so and you also did a bunch of stuff before this anesthesia residency. So walk us through kind of your story and what you've been up to and where you're headed. Yeah, um, I uh, started off um, actually doing marine ecology research when I was in college. Kind of that's how I got into science, and then uh, did a little bit of a jaunt down to Boston and worked at Mass General Hospital doing some research before getting my master's degree at Tufts uh, and then getting my medical degree also at Tufts. And while I was at Tufts, I rotated up here at Maine Medical Center and really loved it. Um, thought it was a great opportunity. I uh, really loved the attendings and everyone else who I worked with up here. So came back here for residency and then I've been here for the last four years. And as you just said, I graduated last week. Yeah, nice Mo job. Monday was my last day. It was quite interesting. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, now heading down to Massachusetts General Hospital to do a critical care fellowship down there. That's awesome. Uh, and then we were talking before we hit record, you're hoping to split your time between working as a critical care intensivist and an OR anesthesiologist. Yeah. You know, one of my passions is cardiac critical care and mechanical circulatory support. Um, and that's something that I want to continue to do through my career. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to, as a critical care anesthesiologist, to be in the ICU. You have a lot of great training, a lot of great experience that you have to offer there. But then you bring all that training and experience to the operating room as well. You know, you do these cases and you're taking care of a patient and you've seen what is happening to them on day three, day four, day 10 of their stay in the hospital. Yeah. And you start adjusting your care to that. And I think it gives you an opportunity to bring those things in and kind of elevate your care. One of the things that I really also love to do is take care of these patients who have LVADs, who are on ECMO, things like that, and kind of do those cases in the OR as well. So that's kind of also how I got really into this stuff is I thought that was fascinating and 
it was just super interesting. And then it kind of like, I kept doing more and more of it. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, like done all this like really cool stuff. And this is awesome. And you get to kind of do it all together. So it's been awesome. Did you know that you wanted to do a crew care fellowship prior to your anesthesia residency? Or is this something that you kind of came upon as you got into it? Yeah, that's a good question. I was probably on the radar, but not like, it wasn't like I went into anesthesia. Yeah. There are some people who are like, I'm going into anesthesia and I'm going to go to critical care. And those people are amazing. And then I took a little bit of a more winding path and, um, you know, have always had a really strong interest in, in cardiac anesthesia as well. Um, and so those kind of two came together. Uh, really here at Maine Med have been influenced by some really great people who yeah. were both cardiac anesthesiologists and critical care anesthesiologists. And um, they really have inspired me in my career and in my path that I've chosen. So they're incredible people. Yeah. They, you work with them too. And, and they're just amazing. So there's so much fun. There's some of the smartest people I know. Uh, and there's so much fun to have in the OR. Uh, cause like, you're right. They bring that wealth of experience to, uh, simple cases. It is always weird to see them at like the outpatient surgery center though. I'm like, they let you out. They let you like, yeah. they let, they let you do simple cases too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is there something crazy going yeah. on with this yeah. patient? Like you're like immediately on edge. And it's like, no, they can also do the day of hernias and, uh, yeah. you know, knee scopes as well. And that's also, that's also just as fun too. And you need that balance. So you need a break sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, cool, man. Well, I'm, I'm stoked to have you share your passion on LVADs in this podcast. So let's start off with a brief overview of LVADs. Tell us a little bit about what they are and why would a patient get an LVAD? Yeah, John. So uh, LVAD stands for left ventricular um, assist device. And these are mechanical devices that are implanted in the patient to provide a short or long-term bridge or therapy for the patient. So these are patients who have end-stage heart failure, either from ischemic or non-ischemic causes, who are often on maximal medical therapy, and there's really no option for them at that time. So an example would be a patient who has had multiple heart attacks, they've had revascularization, but their heart function just hasn't improved. And they're sitting in the ICU potentially on inotropes or on maximal medical therapy of beta blockers or um, diuretics, things like that, and they're just not getting better. A lot of these patients also have symptoms at rest. They're what we would call New York Heart Association class four. And they can't do anything. You can't live like that. That's really hard. And there's a lot of times not a lot of options for these patients. We know from data, historical data, that the medical management is okay, but the long-term outcomes aren't great for that. Patients who are on inotropes oftentimes only have less than six months of survivability, kind of predicted survivability. So an LVAD is a way to improve that. Um, as I said, it's an implanted mechanical device. It does require pretty major surgery uh, to get put in. And then you have this device that sits in there and it assists your heart. So as these patients kind of get further out from their surgery, you have some, you have the LVAD providing cardiac output, you have the heart providing cardiac output, everything seems to get better. There, there's, a, there's a difference between people who get this as a destination therapy, like this is, this is their plan. They have severe heart failure and they're not a candidate for a heart transplant. And other people who have an LVAD and they're trying to get through this phase where they need support until they get a heart transplant. How is the decision made around who has this as destination therapy versus bridge to transplant? Yeah, so the indication, uh, the FDA indication for the LVAD is short or long-term mechanical support in end-stage heart failure as either a bridge to transplant or destination therapy. So bridge to transplant is a patient who is eligible for a heart transplant, but there's not one available. Here in the United States, there's somewhere between two or three times as many patients who will need a heart transplant as there is available organs. So the timing doesn't always work out. And so if you start deteriorating and you need support, well, you can put in this device, you can live for a little while longer and await your heart transplant. So those are patients who might be younger or for whatever reason, they're on the transplant list. Yep. There are kind of a subset of those patients who are may or may not be eligible for transplant. And so those are called bridge to decision. So they may have like some acute kidney injury or a little bit of an acute liver injury or something like that that needs to get better before they would be eligible for a transplant. They might not, but they might get better. And so you also put an LVAD in them. 
things improve, and then they can either be listed for transplant. And then the third indication is what you mentioned, it's called destination therapy. And so again, end-stage heart failure patient, you don't have another option. This is your destination. You get this device. It's The goal there is to improve your functional status, make you live longer, and then also kind of improve your organ function. And what boxes those patients out from being able to get a transplant typically? Uh, I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. Sometimes multi-organ failure, if they have other organ dysfunction as well, that can make it a reason for that them not being transplant candidate. Um, there can also be social reasons, um, social support reasons. Um, they may have, again, other comorbidities. Um, lots of different reasons can kind yeah. of rule people out for a transplant. Um, some centers are doing some more aggressive things with transplants, with multiple organ transplants at the same time. Um, you know, not something that we do uh, that I've seen a lot of, um, but can be done. But yeah. there's a lot of different factors that go into why you yeah. wouldn't be a transplant candidate. And then uh, you talked about comparing um, medical therapy and inotrope therapy. That's based upon a couple studies that we can link, uh, link into the show notes. You mentioned in your Grand Rounds talk, the rematch trial and the Intrepid trial. Uh, with long-term LVAD use, what what can someone expect, you know, kind of best case scenario in terms of like years of survivability, quality of life, those kinds of things? Yeah. So um, the two trials you mentioned, the rematch and the Intrepid trial came out um, about 10 years ago now. And those were the two trials that also got the device, the indication for destination therapy. Before that, oh, it was all bridge to transplant. Yeah. So the rematch trial was the first one that came out, and its big thing was it showed that there was a very significant survival benefit for the patients who received an LVAD, um, and they measured out to about 30 months um, versus patients who were on medical therapy alone. The other thing is that the quality of life was also much better. So things like psychiatric depression, emotional fatigue, um, just also functional status symptoms, cardiac symptoms were all better in the LVAD group versus the medical therapy group. So that was kind of the first trial. And then the second trial is the Intrepid trial, which kind of mirrored the same thing. It compared LVADs to um, medical therapy. And these patients were all on inotropes at the start. So these are kind of the sickest of the sick. There's yep. really nowhere for them to go. And at 6 and 12 months, the survival in the LVAD group was more than double, double the survival wow. in the medical therapy group. Um, still you know, not great. The survival at, uh, I think at one year in the intrepid trial was about 25%. Yeah. So still relatively high morbidity, uh, morbidity and mortality, but a lot better. And after, I think after about 16 months, there was no medical therapy patients surviving. And so until wow. the end of the study it was all LVADs. So the other thing that happened in that study too, is that they compared the New York Heart Association functional status, but kind of before and after. And so all of the patients were that functional cl class four. So that's symptoms at rest. In the medical therapy group, the last time they measured it, they were still all class four. Yeah. Whereas in the LVAD group, the majority went to class two, which is light symptoms with exertion or wow. symptoms with heavy exertion. And a couple even became class one, which is no symptoms wow. at all. These people are really experiencing a, a huge benefit in terms yeah. of the quality of life. Oh, yeah. I mean, you go from shortness of breath, chest pain, you know, all those cardiac symptoms that you might be having on a daily basis, you can't even do your own, you know, daily living activities of daily living to you can walk around, you can like go to the baseball game, you can yeah. do all those things. That's a pretty amazing improvement. Right. Um, you know, like I said, though, they're not a, you know, they're not a cure-all. Like there's right. still significant mortality that's associated with these, and but it's better than, than nothing. Than the alternative, right. Yeah, and actually when you compare survival, um, kind of more recent data with survival for these LVAD patients, over about two years, the survival is about 70 to 80%. So we've gotten better since the yeah. rematch and intrepid trial. Um, and that's actually pretty similar to heart to heart transplant data. Wow. So it's pretty good. Long-term, we don't have good data yet. Yeah. Um, you know, we know for heart transplants, kind of about to about 10 or 12 years, what happens for most people. With LVADs, we just don't have that same kind of long-term data. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's, I, I want to talk about the kind of the perioperative management of LVADs for the anesthesia provider listeners out there. Before we get to that, give us a quick rundown on the basic physiology. So uh, it, in your grain rounds talk, you did a wonderful job 
just reviewing like the basic physiology of cardiac output and then what cardiac output looks like when you get an LVAD. So walk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, basic principles is always important to go back to. And remember in cardiac output, normally you have preload, afterload, and contractility are kind of your three main determinants. Well, with an LVAD, you have the same thing. You have preload, afterload, and then pump speed is akin to contractility. So the way an LVAD works is you pump blood from the left ventricle, goes through a pump, and then it gets deposited into the ascending aorta. The difference in pressure between the left ventricle and the ascending aorta, so the pressure difference across that pump, that's kind of what your determinant of flow is. But it, and it's inversely related. So as our pressure gradient goes down, flow through the LVAD actually increases. So what this means is that as the pressure inside the left ventricle increases and gets closer to the pressure in the ascending aorta, flow increases. What we see then is actually you see some systolic and diastolic variation in flow through the LVAD. Right? As the heart squeezes, the left ventricular pressure is going to start increasing. That pressure gradient across the LVAD diminishes, and then flow increases. So that's uh, kind of an important principle. And we talk about LVADs being um, preload dependent and afterload sensitive. So you want to get that blood to the LVAD, keep that pressure up, and then as you increase or decrease afterload, you're also going to change your, your flow through the pump. Now, uh, you had an interesting story about Dick Cheney. Who, who <laughs> yeah. Had an yeah, he did. Um, and, which is something I didn't know until I was working on this talk Yeah, that, um, after, uh, after he was out of office, he had developed ischemic cardiomyopathy. But if you Google famous people who have had LVADs, he, he comes up and then you click on one of the links and the first thing it says is that Dick Cheney lived without a pulse for six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of not really entirely true, but it's pretty funny and sensational. Um, but that gets to one of the important things with LVADs is that people do go, well, they have an LVAD. Do they have a pulse? Right. And the answer to that, like most things in medicine, is not as simple. <laughs> <laughs> so some patients do and yeah. some patients don't. And it really depends on the preload and afterload that we talked about. Pump speed also is going to affect how much flows through the pump, but it comes down to the contribution of cardiac output of the left, the intrinsic left ventricle yep. and the LVAD. And we can talk about this in a number that's called the pulsatility index, which is just kind of comparing the peaks of the flows. And it, as the pulsatility index is higher, there is more of a pulse. And so if you have a patient who has a high pulsatility index, if you feel their pulse, you're going to feel a pulse. Um, if they have a low pulsatility index, it means the majority of the flow, the majority of the cardiac output going to the body is going through the LVAD and doesn't come from the left ventricle. And so that patient may not have a pulse. Um, and this is important. We'll talk a little bit about this later, but that can be really important for your anesthesia planning as well, um, kind of what that pulsatility is, and also can be important for your intraoperative management. We'll get to we'll get to more specifics on monitoring, but just since we're talking about pulse, no pulse, you put these people on a cardiac monitor, you're still going to see electrical rhythms intrinsic. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You they still have an intrinsic cardiac rhythm, and um, a lot of them, you want them to be in sinus rhythm, um, and arrhythmia management is huge. Um, these patients often don't tolerate being out of sinus rhythm. Uh, again, maintaining that preload is really important. Um, the LVADs, another thing that's important to know about LVADs is they don't, they can't really provide all of the cardiac output that a right. patient needs. They can provide a pretty high proportion of it, but it's not all of it. Um, unlike an uh, ECMO circuit that is essentially providing complete right. cardiac support. So that's one of the key differences. These are assist devices. Right. They're pretty good, and they're going to make you go from being cardiogenic shock to not, but they're not everything. They're still an assist device, and they're mm -hmm. still a left ventricular assist device. Yes. They're, not, they're not really tinkering with the right ventricle in its contribution to cardiac output, which again, what you're getting at is why it's so important to keep them in sinus rhythm. Yeah, and that's that, you know, the LVAD requires blood getting to it. Without that maintaining of rhythm, the right ventricle can't move the blood across the lungs yeah. and oxygenate it and get it to the LVAD. So that's really important. And that's a really important thing to think about when you're taking care of these patients and when you're doing your preoperative evaluation is, what is their right ventricular function? Right, right, right. So this talk specifically is uh, obviously geared towards non-cardiac 
anesthesia providers. So when are we going to see these patients in the OR for non-cardiac surgery? What are the most common types of cases that patients with LVADs are getting when they need anesthesia care? Yeah, so that's a good question. And the first thing is that we're going to be seeing more of it. So the number of LVADs that have been implanted over the last 10 years has been increasing. And anywhere between 20 and 50% of those patients are going to need non-cardiac surgery at some point. The majority of those cases are things like EGDs, colonoscopies. Um, the patients also have what's called a drive line, which is the controller line for the LVAD that comes out of their skin to source for infection. You will see debridements for infection, things like that. These patients also have other things that happen to them that are either complications of the LVAD. They might require a you know emergent craniotomy or a burr hole for an intracranial hemorrhage. There are vascular complications, thrombectomies that can occur. Um, sometimes it's just other things that happen to people as well. You might fall and break an ankle and need an ORIF. Um, you know, you might need a hernia repaired. Those things happen to these patients as well. That's not the majority of cases. Yeah. Most of the time it's EGDs, colonoscopies, driveline debridements, TEEs, yep. those kind of things. Yep. You mentioned even someone having a C-section. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes these patients can, uh, you know, like I said, things happen to them. Um, I recently did a uh, did a case for a patient who has an LVAD who got bariatric surgery. Wow. Um, you know, and this is to help her lose weight to become eligible for transplant. But, you know, these are the other things that happen is that, you know, especially for younger patients, things are going to happen. You're going to do these things. So Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the pre-op eval. Uh, what factors should anesthesia providers be considering when they're preparing to take care of these patients? So they've got a different physiology. They've got a, they've got a device on board. They're coming for non-cardiac surgery. What should be like top of the list things that anesthesia providers are thinking about? So one of the most important things to think about is how is the blood pressure going to be measured? Um, and we talked a little bit about earlier about how pulsatility, some of these patients don't have a lot of pulsatility. And uh, you want to find out, you know, how is the patient's blood pressure being taken on the floor? How is it being taken in the cardiologist's office? That's going to be important to kind of think about your monitoring plan. We talked about right ventricular function. You want to know what the RV function is. Is the RV function pretty robust? Is it not as good? All going to be very important to kind of think about what potentially medications you might need intra-op or how they're going to tolerate your anesthetic. You want to think about looking at their recent echo, PA catheter data. These patients often get serial echoes, so the data should be really readily available. And then anticoagulation management is huge. These patients are all on anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. You have this metal pump in your body. You need to be on anticoagulation. Um, and you want to know what the plan is for that. Are they you know, coming into the hospital for kind of a semi-elective procedure and they're going to be bridged with heparin and that's going to be turned off. Is this more emergent and you're just going to do the procedure or do you need to reverse them? And, the, you know, if you were doing a burr hole or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you want to find out what the plan is for that. And then you want to think about transfusion, transfusions for these patients. EGD colonoscopy being the most common procedure for GI bleeds in these patients. They might need transfusions. You have to transfuse them if it's necessary. And somewhere between like 15 and 40% of these cases that are for non-cardiac surgery will get transfusions. Oh, interesting. Um, and you want to think about with transfusions, if you need to do it, you need to do it. But if the patient's getting, you know, has an LVAD for a bridge to transplant, giving them a transfusion may, puts them at risk for alloimmunization, mm -hmm. and then it can be harder to find a match. So you want to think about that. Again, you need to do what you need to do, but something to think about. So so knowing what pathway they're on is important in terms of your actual clinical decision-making. Is this destination yeah. therapy? Is this bridge to transplant? Is this bridge to decision? Yeah, that's huge. Um, you know, these patients, you know, one blood transfusion maybe is not going to, yeah. you know, put them off the path. But if they're having a GI bleed and you're going to need to give them, you know, a bunch of units, it's possible. Yeah. Um, and so you, you do need to know that, um, you know, you want to know kind of where they're at. And some of these patients also, that might give you an indication of what their function is, their functional status and right. how they're doing is as well. You know, if they're 18 months out from a destination VAD, they're probably doing not too poorly. You know, if they're three months out and they're a transplant candidate, it might be a different yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great point. Great point. So, uh, we've got an LVAD on the schedule. They're having an EGD, colonoscopy, whatever. 
what can we expect the patient to come down to the OR with? What are we going to see uh, in terms of their equipment, other support staff that may be with them? Yeah, so the patient's going to come down, and you're going to go meet them in at our institution here at Maine Medical Center. A nurse practitioner, a nurse, or a heart failure cardiologist will come down to them. They'll have a little cart at the foot of their bed, which will have a computer-type device sitting on it, and that's your VAD controller. And that nurse or nurse practitioner or heart failure doc is your liaison kind of between you and the VAD controller, and they can help you kind of interpret it and make some changes if you need to. That controller is also going to have the ability to plug in, so the patient can plug themselves into that controller to power the VAD through the procedure. Normally, if they're walking around at home or out and about, they have a couple battery packs that they carry with them, and that provides the power for the LVAD. And they're usually carrying those battery packs in like a some sort of holster harness device, or like a like a side bag, or yeah, there's like a vest or holster or harness type thing. There's actually a whole line of LVAD clothing. Hey, um, things you things when you things you find when you're working on these yeah, kind of things, you, you start googling things. Um, yeah, there's this whole line of LVAD clothing, you know, of holding the batteries. Right. Um, and the batteries give them a couple hours, but you know, if you, you have the opportunity to, you can plug into the controller, you can kind of give them like wall power and you don't have to wear down the batteries. Is a controller something that at LVAD patient would, they wouldn't tinker with that at the house. That's just for trained professionals to be able to manage their LVAD. Yeah, the can, there's no, I don't think there's an app where they can adjust it. Um, but the controller is really for the, the heart failure cardiologist to adjust settings and get information as well. Yeah. So the device will kind of record if there's certain events that are that are triggered, and you can kind of get that readout as well. Yeah. Um, but it's really to make changes to the VAD speed, and it yeah. also provides you information. Right. So it's what, like a it's like a little monitor. Yeah. I mean, you get a screen and you get a great readout in terms of pump speed and yeah. other data. Yeah. So it's going to tell you what pump speed is, and then it's going to give you a calculated flow. And it's going to tell you what the power consumption is. And so the VAD controller uses that power to tell you what the flow is. And again, that's a calculated number. It's pretty accurate, but on certain extremes, it can be inaccurate. And then some of the VADs, um, specifically the HeartMate 3, or the Heartware, HeartMate 3, will tell you the pulsatility index. Yeah. Um, and, a, and one of them has like a fancy little graph, so you can see kind of systole and diastole, the oh, flow nice. variation. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, it's kind of another vital sign when you get in there, you can kind of see right. what the VAD is doing and you can see that these things change as you go through your anesthetic. So again, it's just, it's another vital sign. And if you really needed to, you could ask the, the nurse or the cardiologist to make an adjustment to the VAD settings to help you out. That's great. What, what's the typical anesthesia plan? I know it, it's, it's case dependent, right? General anesthesia, uh, Mac or like conscious sedation, uh, are there preferences? Are there are there techniques? Tiva versus inhalational meds we should avoid. Talk us uh, talk to us about how to tailor anesthesia for these patients. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of like the the meat of of this is what are we going to do for them? Right. And the bottom line is that there's no one way that is considered superior to another, um, and it's really case dependent. You can definitely do that EGD and colonoscopy, the driveline debridement. You can do that as a MAC. Um, now, if you have a super anxious patient, might be a little harder, right. but you absolutely can. What you want to be careful of when you're doing these MACs is that these patients, if they get hypoxic, hypercarbic, their right ventricle may not tolerate that change in pulmonary vascular resistance as well as someone else might. So you do want to be careful with that. Yeah. And you can get changes in afterload and things like that from even a MAC. Um, you know, you will see a little bit maybe drop in blood pressure. That can affect your, your LVAD flow as well. But general anesthesia is also a very good option. Again, it kind of depends on the procedure. Um, you know, if you're doing something that's a little more invasive, you might have to do general anesthesia. Um, and there's no problems with that. Yeah. Um, there's really no medications that specifically needed, need to be avoided. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you want to ma- make sure you maintain, you know, good blood pressure. Don't let the patient desat, things like that. Um, but again, the basic principles still apply. When you're getting an LVAD patient to the OR for general anesthetic, let's say it's a relatively healthy patient, they're stable on their LVAD, and you know you have to go to sleep, get an endotracheal tube in, what would be your basic approach? The first thing is to figure out my blood pressure monitoring. Yeah. Um, like I kind of mentioned before, 
with pulse satility, sometimes our blood pressure monitors, especially our automated blood pressure cuffs, require that pulse satility, and they don't always work. Yeah. So my default is to do an A line, um, often pre-induction, you know, always pre-induction in these cases, um, and I have to talk myself out of uh, out of the A line for you know variety of reasons. Now, if you have a patient who's doing really well and you're doing a Mac and you can get really good blood pressures, have the stuff in the room, but maybe you don't need to do it. Yeah. Um, but you know, that case that's general anesthetic, do your pre-induction A line, um, your regular ASA standard lines and monitors, you know, use your SAT probe. SAT probe may or may not work again. Pulsatility kind of is important for that SAT probe to pick up what our sac- oxygen saturation is. Yep. So you might get a funky number might get a bad waveform that's fine but you have that a line you can just send off an abg and you kind of know where you're standing huge benefit for having an a line in these patients and then central venous access monitoring cvp or pa catheter could be helpful if you think you're going to need infusion of medications especially if it's a bigger case a longer general anesthetic i would advocate for it um you know these patients also might need it for afterwards um it can be good to have and then the final thing is TEE can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it can really allow you to visualize, directly visualize the heart, look at the left ventricular filling, look at the right ventricular function, kind of see how the LVAD is doing. Is my left, is my LV distended or is it, you know, almost like suctioning down? And right. those things can be really important to kind of drive, like, do I need to give more fluid? Do I need more afterload? So it can be very helpful. So let's unpack like the, the intraoperative experience for, again, like a healthy LVAD patient coming for a general anesthetic, uh, who knows, you know, lap coli, hernia repair, your bariatric surgery patient, that's kind of a different comorbidity set, but, um, that LVAD expert, whether it's the nurse, NP, MD, they're in the room during the, during the case. Yeah, they're going to come with you. They stay with the patient the whole time when they're kind of off the cardiology floor. So and, they'll they'll come into the room. And what kind of uh, what kind of conversation or interaction should again non cardiac anesthesia providers uh, think in terms of how to interact and incorporate these people into the care of these patients under general anesthesia? It's it's a bit of a team effort. Yeah, it's definitely a team effort, um, like everything we do in anesthesia. Um, but they can tell you again, kind of give you a sense of what numbers are coming from the LVAD and how are things changing? So you get into the room, the patient's awake, your pulsatility index is five, just for an example. You go off to sleep and it goes down. They can tell you that information. You can use that to adjust, to kind of adjust blood pressure, things like that. If you're getting in a situation where you're having a hard time maintaining flow through the LVAD, you might have to adjust the speed. Um, it can happen and they're the person that's gonna help you do that. Yeah. Um, there, there's a couple of warnings that can come from the controller and they would give you a heads up if they saw one of those. Come That's up. great. Yeah. In terms of like post-induction hypotension, routine vasopressor use, do you have a preference for one thing over the other or should anesthesia providers be thinking, you know, thinking about preload, afterload, hypoxia, hypercarbia mm-hmm. management, those kind of things, basically maintaining homeostasis. But the tools in terms of vasopressors that are typically reached for uh, ephedrine, neosinephrine, um, are there other medications that are advantageous? Would you have a preference for one or the other? There's not really, um, I think, one agent that is considered vastly superior. Things that I consider take into consideration for these these patients, um, phenylephrine, great, provides excellent afterload increase, which you might need. Vasopressin is also a really good option. Mm-hmm. It's less likely to increase your pulmonary vascular resistance, which can be beneficial in these situations. So also a drug that I would reach for very quickly in these patients. Having an inotrope like epinephrine available could also be valuable. Um, norepinephrine, if you had it as an infusion, would also be fine. Um, personally, I tend to avoid ephedrine in these patients because I think it it has an unpredictability that yeah. might be could get you into trouble. But uh, there's no literature, nothing that I've kind of read that says you shouldn't use it. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I would say with ephedrine is that sometimes people who are like pro arrhythmogenic, I sometimes ephedrine can kind of kick off those things. I'm not sure it's really any worse than epinephrine or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, blood pressure monitoring and um, 
you know, managing a, a dampened waveform on a, on a pulse oximeter. Uh, these can be unnerving things for folks who are not experienced with LVADs. When you see an arterial waveform uh, and maybe you're only getting a map reading. That's flat. Yeah, that's flat. Yeah. Uh, when you see a pulse ox and you can't get a waveform, but you look at the patient and they look great, but you can't get a waveform to pick up. Uh, coach us through how you would manage that, how you think about that, how you pro how you decide to proceed with the case under these very normal conditions for some people who have LVADs. Yeah, those are great questions. And definitely that is where the LVAD starts to get really different. You know, we are not used to seeing that very dampened arterial waveform, the almost flat, like yeah. that's unnatural to right. us. So how you would approach it is thinking about, you know, if you have hypotension and using the VAD information, where's your pulsatility, what are your flows? So if you're in a situation where you're hypotensive with low pulsatility, you can also then take that flow data and say, am I in a high flow state or am I in a low flow state? And high flow state almost always means you have a decrease in afterload. So that's sepsis or just our anesthetic agents causing yeah. vasodilation. So we've kind of lost pulsatility. We need to improve that in intrinsic cardiac function or decrease the flow through the LVAD to get that intrinsic cardiac function back up and kind of bump up our blood pressure. In that case, phenylephrine, vasopressin, you know, would be what, what yeah. to think about there. Now, if you're in the same situation, but you're in a setting of low flow, again, getting that information from the VAD controller, that's almost always a preload or supplying blood to the LVAD problem. Now that might mean you have hypovolemia, you've had decreased venous return to the heart because we're now under positive pressure ventilation or patient positioning. There could be ongoing bleeding. That could also be right ventricular dysfunction. So this is where TEE can be very valuable um, or using CVP and a PA catheter to kind of look at the pressure across the right heart. But you know, you're gonna see where do I stand with that? And then in that case, you kind of treat the problem that you find. So if you think it's decreased venous return or hypovolemia, give some fluids, give blood if you need to. If it's right ventricular dysfunction, start an inotrope, give some epinephrine, and see what happens with that. That's great. Uh, tell me about what's up with manual blood pressure cuffs and ultrasound. What are people doing with those? So as I said before, you know, pulsatility is really important. And our automated blood pressure cuffs require that pulsatility to kind of give us that number. Some of these patients, what you'll see is that you'll just get a map that gets spit out um, because it can figure out a map, but it can't give you anything else. Sometimes you get normal numbers. It really depends on the patient. Some of these patients, they don't have enough pulsatility. So you use a manual cuff and a Doppler ultrasound until you hear the flow and that's your map. Um, that's your you map. don't really get a systolic and diastolic. Um, that... It seems really easy, but it's actually pretty hard to do yeah, in yeah, practice. Yeah. Um, so you want to know going into this what, you know, the patient under their kind of optimized conditions, yes. how can we get that blood pressure? Yeah. And usually that VAD expert is going to have that information. They, they're not only an expert on VADs, but they usually know this particular patient really well. Yeah, these, the heart failure docs and the NPs and the nurses who I worked with here, who take care of these patients, they know all that in and out. And a lot of the patients do too. You ask right. them, how do they take your blood pressure? They go, oh, well, they do this thing and this thing. And you go, okay. Um, or they say, oh yeah, they always just use the machine. And you know, you talk to the bad nurse, they go, yeah. oh yeah, they always, we are always able to get it with the non-invasive, the automatic cuff. Okay, that's great. Um, but what, you know, like I said, those are under the optimized conditions. That's right. a patient who's, who's at home, who's doing well, or even on the floor and kind of, doing okay. But now we're going to go and put them under anesthesia and kind of change how everything is working. And so we may lose the pulsatility that they had and then make it so that our non-invasive cuff doesn't work. Um, if you're going to rely on the manual cuff with the Doppler, you should practice it. Like I said, it's it seems simple, but I've tried <laughs> to do it and I, you know, it's, suffered my own hubris. I was like, I can totally do this. It was like a lot harder than I thought. Oh man. Um, it's not super hard. You just yeah. need to practice it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and, and I think I want to emphasize in this, in this conversation of that, you know, there's a picture again for folks that may not have done these cases very often where you could be in a case with a relatively healthy VAD patient that has low pulsatility where you're uh, conservative to the point where you put a, a pre-induction A-line in 
but you don't get good good enough positivity to get a good waveform. You get a map reading. Your pulse ox look, looks a little shaky. Maybe it's in and out. Yep. So you're looking at other parameters to judge in terms of like the controller for the VAD, and then you're looking at, you know, obviously in-tidal CO2 management, other uh, hemodynamic parameters with your um, – uh, with your A-line, but yeah. you may be doing that case without these normal feedback uh, pieces of information that you're used to relying on, a good, solid pulse ox waveform and a no, nice... No, I got my pulse ox. Everything is okay. Yeah, and a yeah. nice, healthy like waveform yeah. on an A-line. You've got a map number and a spotty pulse ox, and everything could be fine. Yeah. Like, and the it, patient could be totally fine, and yes. you should proceed. That's not a reason to cancel a case. Nope. And you, I would actually say you should expect... Right, you're going to lose those automated monitors, especially if you do general anesthesia. Right. Um, so that's where you should be prepared for. It. And so, if you are doing a non-invasive cuff, have an A-line set up in the room. Yeah. Um, you know that A-line is going to provide you with that direct blood pressure measurement, but you're also going to be able to send off an ABG and kind of get of your assessment that way. End uh, tidal CO2, as you mentioned, is a great is also great. That's going to kind of tell you what your cardiac output is. You know, if your CO2 goes down you're in trouble. Um, you know, other things is actually your EKG is still really important. We talked a right. little bit about how arrhythmias for these patients can be detrimental, but arrhythmias can also be a warning sign that perfusion isn't as good. They're having a little hypoxia or a little, or something like that. So if you see a major rhythm change that you want to start thinking about, is something going wrong elsewhere that I'm not capturing? Um, and you, you kind of, you mentioned earlier, a lot of the monitors that we rely on on every day on a daily basis that become your you're just used to that little yeah. blipping sound every, right every minute every second they may not be there the um, blip's not going to be there I, the blip is not going to be there john <laughs> i'm sorry sorry to, to, to i always turn day. down the volume anyway that thing drives me crazy yeah oh. Especially in peas when it's like 200 a minute. Like, ah, I always put it to like two or one. Like as, long as, you, as long as you can hear it. You can hear it. But yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. what's important. Um, but you're, yeah, you're like that feedback that you're used to is, right. is not going to be there. Um, and so you have to think about the other things. And so, like we talked about, you know, ABG, also looking at the patient, as you right. said earlier, you know, do they look like they're cyanotic? Do they look like they're kind of well perfused? Um, sending off your ABG, and then, you know, as I, I'm a big proponent of echo, and echo has a yeah. lot of value here to assessing function and thing, seeing how things are going. I think echo, intraoperative uh, transesophageal echo is one of the things that I think that non-cardiac anesthesia providers, it's healthy to be reminded of. If you work at a center where they're doing cardiac cases, you've got people in-house that can come do an intraop echo. And I think that sometimes non-cardiac anesthesia providers, I don't know, there may just be like a reluctance. Like if it's not within your wheelhouse, you may think, well, I've got to do this case without, but like, con like call your cardiac anesthesiologist yep. in, have, see if they're busy, see if someone's available, see if they're covering other rooms, have them grab an echo machine and come in. I was doing a massive transfusion one time on a, on a ruptured spleen and, we were in that same position of, you know, are they hypovolemic? Have we ruptured a papillary muscle? Why are we still so hypotensive? We've resuscitated this patient with a large amount of uh, blood products during this massive transfusion. Where are we at? Surgery seems to feel like they've got bleeding under control. Uh, cardiac doc walked in, dropped a probe. Yeah, your LV's clamped down. You need to, you know. You need more volume. Yeah. You can get that estimate. Throttle yeah. forward on the massive transfusion. Boom. Beautiful information to have. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's one of those things that if you, you know, potentially, if it's not something that you're doing every day, it's just not in your mind when you're setting up for one of these yeah. cases. Um, but you bring up an excellent point. You know, you have other resources available outside the room. Call a colleague and get some assistance that way. Have them come do a quick echo. It can be really valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what other intraoperative pearls would you want anesthesia providers to know about caring for these folks during non-cardiac cases? Anything else come to mind? You know, I think the one of the other things that we've we've talked about hypotension um, and kind of vasodilation, but the other thing that can happen is that there are events intraoperatively that can cause really acute increases in afterload. So uh, you go to do your laryngoscopy and they're not as deep as they might need to be, or the surgeon makes incision and and they're not as deep as they need to be, and that can cause a really big increase in afterload as well. And again, like we we're talking about before, the LVAD is afterload sensitive, and you increase that afterload. 
increase that pressure gradient and flow is going to go down and then yeah. you could get into trouble that way. So I think that's something that, you know, we, well, all, people are always talking about, Oh, you're going to cause, you know, their preload goes down and their afterload goes down. And it's like, well, you make it all of a sudden so that their afterload goes up. You can also get in trouble. Right. And, um, you know, that's something to kind of be, be considered, keep in your mind. Um, you know, we talked about arrhythmias, very important for maintaining, uh, kind of, blood delivery to the LVAD, maintaining that preload. Um, even atrial fibrillation can cause problems for you. Um, but those arrhythmias might be a warning sign that something bigger is going on, that you're not getting, that you have some hypoxia or something else like that. Um, those are kind of the big things, I think. Yep. Are there uh, emergency-specific to VAD devices that anesthesia providers should be aware of? The big emergency that I can think of is something that's called a suction event. Yeah. And... This is when the preload gets so low that the LVAD actually kind of sucks the wall of the ventricle into its inlet. Um, and when that happens, the LVAD actually uses a fancy uh, algorithm and it detects that and it can detect that there's this massive surge in power because you kind of right. are like, it's like a vacuum cleaner when you stick it on your hand. Um, and it'll stop and kind of allow things to reset. But that's kind of one of the big emergencies um, and that would mean you have severe hypovolemia um, but that also can be a situation where you might have really severe afterload reduction or your pump speed is too high and so you might have to adjust multiple things in that setting uh, i think the other like the other major catastrophe would be if there was like the driveline got cut um, you know unintentionally you know they're doing intra-abdominal surgery and they nicked it or something like that that's going to cause a huge problem. You're going to cut off all your electricity to the LVAD. There's no in, there's no integrated battery that gives you two minutes. You're you're done there. So just to be clear on that, the drive line is the power cord that from, it's, from the battery to the device. There's this is not a pacemaker. There's no internal battery. Yeah, as far as I know, um, someone might be making one coming down the line, but the uh, current VADs out there, if you cut the drive line, you know they they don't have the power. Um, so if that gets cut, that could be a huge problem. Yeah. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is, um, you know, you know, sometimes unfortunately things happen, and if your patient goes into cardiac arrest, um, CPR is actually contraindicated in these patients. That's a great point. Um, you're, there's a concern that if you start doing chest compressions, that you can dislodge the VAD. Um, you know, we talked about earlier that the VAD is an assist device; it doesn't provide all the cardiac output, but it might provide enough that. It's going to keep the blood moving, keep the organs alive. You're going to have a little bit of ischemia, but you can kind of medically run the code without actually doing chest compressions. Um, and in those situations, you want to be thinking about who's your backup. You know, where are my CT surgeons if I need to cannulate for ECMO or if something yeah. goes on in the chest? Um, and that's kind of part of the multidisciplinary approach for these patients is you're there, you're part of the, you're the anesthesia team there, but you have your heart failure docs, you have your sur surgeons hopefully somewhere kicking around available if you need them. Um, and whoever else you kind of need as your backup and yeah. other to kind of support this patient. It's a really big team to support all these patients. Right, right. Can you speak briefly to uh, the response to a suction event? What, what should folks think about if they feel like that's happening? Yeah, so if, if the nurse or, you know, NP or cardiac doc tells you, that, oh, they just had a suction event, the first thing almost always is hypovolemia um, and thinking about, you know, is this because our right ventricular function is down or are we just hypovolemic bleeding? Who yeah. knows what's going on? That's kind of almost always the first thing. Pretty rarely do you get enough afterload reduction to cause a, a suction event unless you have kind of raging sepsis, which can happen. Yeah. Um, but I would say almost always kind of the first instinct would be that this is a volume problem. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, how about post-op care? Where are these folks going after after the intra-op phase of their non-cardiac surgery? They're going to PACU, they're going to ICU? Um, it it kind of depends on the case and their stability, but yeah. PACU is a very appropriate place for these patients to go. Uh, again, at our institution, the VAD nurse or NP or stays with the patient. Um, so they can go to PACU. The PACU nurses don't need to be specially yeah. trained. They're still there going to be keeping an eye on the VAD. Um, so PACU is, total, is a very good option. They might need the ICU. It really depends on the case. Sure. Depends on what's going on. So 
That's great. Well, Ben, uh, it's been amazing to chat with you about LVADs. I think this has been a great rundown. It's a great review of the basics for non-cardiac anesthesia providers. So uh, is there anything else before we close out that you want folks to think about or know or kind of have in their back of the mind? If, you know, if they listen to this and then six months later, they've got uh, a VAD patient coming down for non-cardiac surgery. What do you want them to, to remember to take with them? Um, I think that the big thing is, is don't be scared. Don't be daunted. It's the same basic principles that you need to get the blood to the LVAD, the LVAD pumps it, and then you want to make sure you have enough afterload. Um, and so again, those kind of same basic principles are there. Don't be scared. Don't be worried. I think they're really cool cases. I think they're really neat physiology. Um, and you know, again, it's, it's going to be something that in the next couple of years is going to be more and more of what we're doing. Yeah. I think that's a great sound off. Uh, my background in critical care was all medical surgical, never saw VADs during my time in those adult ICUs. So the handful of times I've had VAD patients as a non-cardiac CRNA, uh, it's been a great experience. It, there is like fear and trepidation, that first VAD that you have, you're like, oh my God, there's all this stuff to think about. But then actually, like, like you just said, it's the basic principles and you have this really intelligent person that's there to assist you with interpreting the device and it's kind of cool to see like a flat A line and a, and map a patient talking to you and a patient talking <laughs> to you. You're like, all right, we're going to the OR. Let's like, do this. Oh, all right. Like you're awake and that's flat. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, they're a little scary. They're different. They're not where we're used to. And like we were talking about, you know, you don't have the stat probe, you don't have the blips, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but, but you can do it. And, you know, keep the, keep the basic principles in mind, you know, take your time, be careful, but you're going to, you know, you're going to get through it. That's awesome. Well, Ben Levin, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Good thank luck you, in your fellowship in critical care. And um, I hope we see you again back up here in May Med. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.